Galatians 1, 1 through 2, reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Yeshua the Messiah and Yahweh the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches or congregations of Galatia. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. Last week was an introductory lesson on the need for proper Bible study. I talked about, one, expository preaching, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, exegesis of the Word. We talked about that. And we talked about, two, the book of Galatians as it relates to the law of Yahweh. I think this is why people want me to teach through Galatians. Galatians is the epistle most often used to teach that the law has been abolished and replaced with grace. I don't believe that. I believe law and grace has existed from antiquity. I don't think one replaces the other. I think they both complement each other if you properly understand them. I discussed last week how that a surface level reading of Galatians might lead to that view. But we need to go deeper than the surface. If you're going to explore the ocean's depths, you don't sit in the boat and keep looking at the waves on top of the water. Amen? You get you some scuba gear and you go diving for the treasures in the bottom of the ocean if you're going to explore the depths of the ocean. And the same holds true for sacred Scripture. If you're going to explore the depths of Scripture, specifically the book of Galatians, this epistle that Paul wrote, then you've got to dig deeper than just reading it and thinking you've got it under your grasp after one 30-minute reading. You've got to put on that spiritual scuba gear, right, and go diving for the treasures. With everything that you get, you must get understanding. I talked about how you first should be concerned with what a passage says, a text says, and then with what that text means. In order to understand what the text means, you need to know who wrote it and who it was written to. What words were used, what time it was written, where it was written, to what interest, with what circumstances, considering what goes before and what follows. That's basically a quote from a 14th century theologian named John Wycliffe. You need to understand all of those things. Because if you're not interested in those things, you will not understand the depths and the truths of Scripture. So today we're going to continue our introductory or preliminary teachings before we get into the text of Galatians. And we're going to focus on the who, the to whom, and the where. And to help us, we're going to begin with what we read earlier in verses 1 through 2. Let's read them again. Galatians 1, 1 through 2 says, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Yeshua the Messiah and Yahweh the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. So Paul wrote this epistle, and here in these verses he includes all the brethren who are with him as co-authors of the letter. Now, it's not that the brethren with Paul all held the pen and wrote the letter together, and their hands all moved in the same sequence. Paul is saying here that the letter he is writing has the brethren's approval. I want you to notice something right from the get-go. Paul was not a lone ranger. Paul was not bringing a message apart from the other brethren. 
It is true, as verse 1 says, that he wasn't sent from men nor through the agency of man. I'll deal with that in another sermon. But it is also true that other men, the brethren who were with him at this time, agreed with Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Now, I bring this up because of what I've seen over the last, oh, 15 years or so, I guess. I've been serving Yahweh in this capacity with this understanding for about 20, 21 years. But in the last 15 years or so, I've seen an attempt to deny Paul as an apostle. Yes, there are some Messianic Torah-observant groups and communities who instead of receiving Paul's apostleship have rejected Paul's apostleship. They've labeled him a false apostle and have removed all of his writings from what they considered to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. There are people like this. But if you are serious about rejecting Paul, then you have to be equally serious about rejecting all the brethren who were with him. Look at Acts 13, 1-3. It says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. That Saul is the one who is also called by a different name, a Roman name, Paul. His Hebrew name would have been Shaul. Verse 2, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now here we have some of the men from the assembly at Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria. Antioch in Syria is far north of Jerusalem, and it was a primary location of the early first century synagogue or congregation of believers in Yeshua of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. According to Acts chapter 11, verses 22 through 26, Saul and Barnabas met with the congregation at Antioch for an entire year. And the disciples of Yeshua were first called Christianos at Antioch. We say the word Christian. It comes from the Greek or the Aramaic word Christiana. And the first century use of Christianos or Christian doesn't have the exact same connotation as the 21st century word Christian. Okay, so when you think about 21st century Christians, don't think that automatically means you're talking about what would be considered 1st century Christians. The word Christian just means a follower of the anointed one, a believer in what was called before Christianity, what was called the way, the way of Messiah, the way of of Yeshua. And these were people right here that were called Christianos because they followed the way of Yeshua. In Antioch, you had Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, who some people believe to be the same as Luke the physician who wrote Luke-Acts, and Manan. They're mentioned right here in Acts 13. These were all brethren of Saul, who is also called Paul. And these are some of the brethren, Paul says, are with him in Galatians 1, 1 through 2. Remember, he says, me and the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. I'd like to talk a little bit about Saul and Barnabas. Barnabas was Saul's buddy. The Holy Spirit spoke to these men while they were ministering and fasting. These men mentioned in verse 1 and 2. 
And the Holy Spirit said to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which he called them to do. So the men fasted, prayed, and laid their hands on them and sent them away. Now Barnabas was a Levite. And he was an early disciple of Yeshua. According to Acts chapter 4 verse 26, his name was actually Yosef, or we might say Joseph. But the apostles surnamed him Bar-Naba. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, and Naba is a word that means encouragement, consolation, or maybe even prophecy. So Barnabas was a later name that the apostles gave him. Barnabas was one of the earliest men to receive Saul into the fold after Saul's conversion. You have to realize, and I'll get more into this as we move through Galatians 1, because Paul gets more through this, that Saul was formerly, Saul slash Paul, was formerly a non-believer in the Messiah. A non-believer that persecuted the believers in Yeshua. Acts 9 verse 1 says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Master. He would go around and bind and imprison and even put to death some of the believers in this Messiah, this man from Nazareth. So you can imagine that when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus to persecute believers in the Messiah, followers of the way, when Saul was converted, some of the believers would have a difficult time receiving him into the fold. They would probably think that it might be a trick to just infiltrate the congregation and then to capture and imprison them because they're believers in Yeshua. But that was not Saul's plan or mission after his Damascus Road experience. He didn't want to imprison them anymore. He wanted to now receive and accept the way that he once persecuted, the way that he once thought was heretical. Acts chapter 9, the first chapter about Saul's conversion, tells us that Barnabas took hold of Saul after his conversion, brought him to the apostles, described to them how he had seen the Master on the road to Damascus, that he had actually talked to Yeshua from heaven, and then he had spoken boldly to others about Yeshua being the son of Yahweh. Acts 9 verse 20 says, after Saul's conversion, he immediately went into the synagogue and preached that Yeshua was the son of Yahweh. So I'm guessing that Saul was praising the Almighty for Barnabas. Because Barnabas was the first man, minus Ananias, whom Yeshua sent Saul to, Barnabas was the first man to receive Saul into the fold and tell all the apostles, this is the real deal. This guy's really been converted. It's not anything fake. Barnabas took Saul under his wing early, and he's certainly one of the brethren who was with Saul, according to Galatians 1, 1 through 2. So one of the places that Barnabas and Saul were sent to was another place called Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch. And it is located in the area then known as Galatia. By the way, if you're not familiar with this, Old Galatia is what we would call today modern-day Turkey, if you look on a map. So if you look in the area that's called Turkey, that would be the, the ancient area known as Galatia. So in Acts 13, if you read through Acts 13, Saul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, let's see if you can follow with me here, they start out right here. This is Antioch in Syria, what I've been talking about. And you follow the blue line. They go down here to Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos. Then they come up to Pamphylia, Persia and Pamphylia. And then they end up here in Antioch in Pisidia. And you see this green area on the map? All of that 
is the area of Galatia. If you continue to read in Acts 13 and move into Acts 14, you'll see also where they go to Lystra and to Derbe. Those are also cities in the region or the area of Galatia. This is where Paul and Barnabas are in Acts chapter 13, verse 14. They're right here in Antioch in Pisidia. Let's read Acts 13, 14 through 16 and get a glimpse of what happens here. It says, But going on from Persia, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. Some people say, I preach with my hand. Paul motioned with his hand. (laughs) Paul motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear the Almighty. He said, listen. So they're in a synagogue in the region of Galatia. A synagogue of people, catch this now, a synagogue of people who are believers in the mighty one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a synagogue of people who are reading the the Torah and the Haftorah, the Law and the Prophets, but yet a synagogue of people who do not believe, or at least not yet believe, that Yeshua of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. They're entering into a Judahite-Israelite synagogue in the first century. These synagogues were not just in the land of Israel, but they were in parts of the known world at that time. So this is why Paul's sermon, I would encourage you to read Paul's sermon. It's a powerful sermon in Acts 13. Paul's sermon centers around Yahweh bringing to Israel a Savior, Yeshua of Nazareth, a Savior from the lineage of King David. You'll see this in Acts 13, 22 through 23. What I would like you to look at intently in this lesson, though, is the to whom Paul speaks. In verse 16, he begins by saying, Men of Israel and you who fear the Almighty. Now, here Paul is not saying that only some of the men of Israel there fear the Almighty. It's not that he says men of Israel and then he centers out or singles out a portion of the men of Israel. No, there are two groups here. The men of Israel and those who fear the Almighty. All the men of Israel there that day were considered to be covenant members, for they were in the synagogue keeping the Sabbath. The men of Israel and those who feared the Almighty were two different groups. Paul makes that distinction again later down in his exhortation in Acts 13.26 where he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear the Almighty. To us the word of this salvation is sent out. This salvation is talking about Yeshua the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, the Savior that Yahweh raised up. Notice again, you have the brethren. This is Paul's Judahite-Israelite kinsmen. And then you have those among them who feared the Almighty. Now let's go through these two or possibly three groups here. Paul's brethren are the men of Israel, as mentioned earlier in verse 16. They would certainly be believers in the mighty one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were physical descendants of the house of Judah. Paul himself was from the house of Judah, from the southern tribe of Benjamin. 
And it was from these tribes that Israel was comprised of in the first century predominantly. Predominantly. I'm not saying there may not have been one here and there from the other tribes, but for the most part, the northern house of Israel had already been divorced by Yahweh years back during the time of the prophet Hosea. And Yahweh scattered them among the heathen nations. They lost their identity and they lost their name, Israel. Remember when Jacob's name, Jacob means supplanter or trickster. He got that name at birth because he was holding on to Esau's heel. Well, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, ruling with El when he wrestled with the angel of Yahweh. So these Israelites, they lost their identity, they lost their name. They were not considered Israelites anymore in the strict sense of the word. They were instead part of the nations or part of the Gentiles, if you want to use the Latin Gentile. So when Paul mentions the men of Israel, his brethren, he's specifically speaking about devout Judahites that were still in an Israelite covenant relationship with the Almighty, at least what we might term an old covenant relationship with the Almighty, not necessarily a new covenant or renewed covenant with Yeshua and his blood sacrifice. So Paul says brethren or men of Israel. Then he mentions sons of Abraham. Now sons of Abraham could be could be just another name for the brethren there in verse 26. He calls them brethren and then sons of Abraham's family. It could be talking about the same group of people. Or it could refer to devout proselytes who had become sons of Abraham and part of the Judahite-Israelite faith through three primary things. One, physical circumcision. Two, a mikvah, a proselyte baptism. And three, if and when possible, a sacrifice. And those three had to be done in accordance with the Judahite faith of that time. Now, proselytes are mentioned as being there on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. Remember, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, it mentions devout Judahites dwelling in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. Why are they there in Jerusalem? Why are they dwelling there? Because of the feast. Because of the feast, okay? But then in Acts 2 verse 10, it mentions both Judahites and proselytes. Proselytes were converts to the Judahite or the Israelite faith. They were not raised in the faith from a child. But they adopted that faith as an adult primarily through physical circumcision. These type of people existed in the first century synagogues. For example, right here in Pisidian Antioch. In Acts 13, 42-43, we read this. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Judahites and of the almighty or God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of the almighty. See, when an uncircumcised adult male proselytized to the Judahite faith, they were then considered to be part of the faith of Israel. Devout proselytes, as this text speaks of. Well, then we have the third group that Paul motions with his hand to, and that is those among you who fear the Almighty. Remember? Brethren, comma, sons of the family of Abraham, comma, and those among you who fear the Almighty. Once again, that's a different group. That's not part of the first or first two groups. That's a different group. 
These were people from the nations or the Gentiles, specifically men who had not proselytized through circumcision. These men were allowed in the synagogue, although they were uncircumcised. They loved the Mighty One of Israel. They served Him to what capacity they were allowed, but they were not considered to be on equal plane or equal status with the Judahites or the devout proselytes. Why? Because they had not went through proselytization. Circumcision as is demanded. We're not necessarily just talking about Abrahamic circumcision. Circumcision as is demanded by the first century Judahite faith. If you don't do it their way, it's not considered done. If I lived back there, I couldn't just decide to go as an adult, get circumcised on my own. I would have to do it the way that the sages and the rabbis and everybody else at that time dictated and said, or else it wouldn't be considered kosher, it wouldn't be proper. So these people were allowed in the synagogue, but they were not considered to be part of the Judahite faith because they had not proselytized. These are the people mentioned in Acts 13.16 and Acts 13.26 as, quote, those among you who fear the Almighty. And I believe they're also mentioned later in Acts 13.44 when it says, and the next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Almighty. And you notice, we'll get to this next week, but if you read at the end of Acts 13, when the whole city, it's not until the whole city comes and assembles all from the nations, all from the pagans around, they come to assemble to hear what Paul and Barnabas are speaking about. It's not until then that the Judahites get upset and they try to start contradicting at that point the things Saul and Barnabas were saying. Why? Because they don't want an inclusion. They don't evangelize, okay? They don't have these tent meetings or evangelistic meetings like we're familiar with. Take our minds back to first century. They don't want any outsiders coming in. You've got to proselytize. You've got to do what we say to do. Or you can be a good Gentile. You can be a good member of the, of the nation. If you do what we say, you're not considered part of the faith, but you can do certain things and have your part, but you're not on equal status or equal footing. Now, an excellent example of such an almighty fearer, or as the English Bible say, a God-fearer, a Yah-fearer, is Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was from Caesarea, and he was an Italian centurion. Or as I like to say, he was part of the Italian battalion. <laughs> so he was an Italian centurion. He had a hundred soldiers working up under him. He was from Italy. And Cornelius is called a devout man, a fearer of the Almighty. The Bible says he prayed to the Almighty always, and he gave alms to the people. And the people there could be the Judahite people or it could be the poor. He did deeds of charity. Yet Cornelius, catch this now, Cornelius was not a proselyte. What do I mean by that? I mean, primarily, he was uncircumcised. Cornelius had not went through the circumcision covenant. That's mentioned in Genesis 17. But yet he's called devout. He prays to Yahweh. He gives deeds of charity. He's a Yah-fearer. And in Acts 10, 1 through 4, the Bible says that an angel came to Cornelius and told him, your prayers and your deeds of charity have come up as a memorial before the Almighty. So Yahweh is listening to this man's prayers. Now, how many know Proverbs 28, 9 says, he that turneth his ear from hearing the Torah 
Even his prayer shall be a what? An abomination. Evidently, Cornelius wasn't turning his ear because Yahweh was listening. This also teaches us, this is not part of my sermon, it's not even in my notes, but this teaches us something contrary to what many people in Christianity teach today. That your righteousness, they say your righteousness is only based on the righteousness of Yeshua. And I think if we're dealing with justification, that's true. But I don't think that it's true if we're dealing with sanctification. Because what Yahweh was looking at in Cornelius' life was not the righteousness of Yeshua. He didn't even believe in Yeshua yet. What Yahweh was looking at was his acts of righteousness, his deeds of charity. He was genuine. He was sincere. He prayed to Yahweh. Yahweh said, this man really wants to know me. And so I'm going to reveal to him not just my, myself. I'm going to reveal to him my son, Yeshua of Nazareth. And that's what happens through Acts chapter 10, if you read that. As a matter of fact, later in Acts 10, when the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household, and the gift that they got, by the way, was the gift of languages, that is, Known languages to someone, but unknown to the speaker. It was the same gift that fell upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2. And the Bible says at the end of Acts 10 that when the circumcised believers, that is the believers in Yeshua, that, who were physically circumcised, Judahite believers, because remember that's who the gospel first went out to only, okay, circumcised Judahites. When they saw that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the uncircumcised, just as it was on us at the beginning in Acts 2, Peter said, who in the world am I to withhold baptism from Cornelius and his household? So Cornelius and his household, catch this now, Cornelius and his household received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized, before anybody had laid their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. And the circumcised believers were amazed. If you read Acts 11, you'll see that the circumcised believers even come to Peter and say, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. And then Peter rehearses what happened in Acts 10 to these men. And when he gets through, those circumcised believers, at least the ones Peter was talking to in Acts 10, they say, okay, we can't argue with heaven. We can't argue with the Almighty. Because that gift didn't come from Satan, I'm going to tell you that. That gift, the same gift that the apostles got in Acts 2, that Cornelius got, that gift came from the Holy Spirit, the set-apart Spirit. So this is happening in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was not considered to be a member of the Judahite faith. He was not a proselyte. And it was because he was uncircumcised. He hadn't done the mikvah as well, the proselyte baptism. He hadn't offered the ceremonial sacrifice, but yet Yahweh was still listening to his prayers and still dealing with this uncircumcised man. Kind of like, brothers and sisters... Catch this, kind of like Yahweh dealt with an uncircumcised man way back in the Old Testament. His name was Father Abraham in Genesis 15. Do you know that when Yahweh counted Abraham's faith to him for righteousness that he had not yet been circumcised? Yahweh made him a promise and the Bible says that Abraham believed Yahweh and it was counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. What was the faith that he had before he was circumcised. I'm kind of veering off on a rabbit trail here. I tell people it's okay to go on a rabbit trail as long as you don't kill and eat the rabbit when you catch him, right? 
The Almighty was watching Cornelius' good deeds and listening to his prayers. Brothers and sisters, the Almighty watches your good deeds when you do them with a pure heart, with sincerity. Didn't we just read a few weeks ago in Genesis 20 about Abimelech, king of Gerar? He wasn't even the descendant of Abraham. He was a foreigner. And he took Sarah, Abraham's wife, because Abraham says she's my sister. But Yahweh closed up the wounds of all the women in Gerar. And then he visited Abimelech in a dream in the middle of the night. Remember reading that? That was beautiful, wasn't it? And Yahweh said, what in the world are you doing? And Abimelech said, I didn't know. I did it with a clean heart and with pure hands. And Yahweh said, I know you did it with a clean heart. Yahweh was watching his good deeds. And then Yahweh said, I have also kept you from sinning against her. Give her back. Abraham's a prophet. Let him pray to Yahweh. Let him pray to me for you and you'll be forgiven. And Yahweh opened up the wombs again of the women in Gerar. Yahweh watches your good deeds. Yahweh listens to your prayers. When they come from a pure heart, a genuine spirit, Yahweh listens and He hears, just like He did to Cornelius. So as we close, the recipients of Paul's letter then were two people like Cornelius. I bring Cornelius up as a good example of an uncircumcised Elohim-fearer, Yah-fearer, who would have been allowed in a Judahite synagogue, but not considered to have equal status with the native-born Judahites or with the adult proselytes, those that had proselytized and circumcised and were considered devout. What we're going to see continuing next week's lesson is that the book of Galatians was written, yes, to the churches of Galatia. That's the surface. But we just went scuba diving okay, in this sermon. And we uncovered that the book of Galatia was specifically written to the people that were in the congregation of Galatia that were Yah-fearers. They were Elohim-fearers of the Almighty, those from among the nations who were uncircumcised, but yet they loved the mighty one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men and even women. I don't want to go on another rabbit trail, but uncircumcision and circumcision in the book of Galatians is not just a reference to men. Now, I'm not saying that women, the right of circumcision belongs to women, but I'm saying that circumcision is shorthand for proselyte. And when a woman's husband would proselyte, she would go through the process as was applicable to her. So we're talking about Elohim fearers that had not went through the proselyte process. That's who the book of Galatians was written to. That's who Paul was specifically centering in on in this epistle. Paul and Barnabas did much missionary work in Galatia. And later on, Paul wrote this epistle to the churches in Galatia. And Paul encouraged the uncircumcised Yah-fearers, fearers of the Almighty, not to be pressured to proselytize in order to receive salvation or right standing with Yahweh. That's what is happening here in Galatia. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You. You are the Master of life and love and You're great. Yahweh Father, I pray that something that was spoken and said would be entrenched in the minds and the hearts of the congregation here today. I pray they would not receive or reject what I say, but they would listen with eagerness and then go back and study and examine the Scriptures and see if these things be so. Father Yahweh, let that be the case. 
I pray that this epistle would continue to be a blessing to us and a light to us as we study it for the next how long and, and we would learn and glean and then apply it to our lives where applicable. We love you, we thank you, we praise you for your son, our Redeemer and elder brother, Yeshua of Nazareth. Amen.